Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night entrepreneurship and leadership channel listener on the New Books Network. Today we've got a very special guest, the author of a book called The Business of Community, David Spinks, and I'm here together with my co-host, Kimon Fontakidis, and business partner and friend. So David, how would you introduce yourself to someone who had no idea who you were and just bumped into you at a party or a business networking event? Well, hopefully they don't start off the conversation with what do you do, but... uh, if, if they did, I guess I would say um, I've spent my entire career either building communities for companies, uh, building companies themselves, and have, have dedicated my career to helping others learn how to build community and, and working with businesses to teach them how to build community. Um, and so today I'm the VP of community at a company called Bevy that powers events for community teams and uh, co-founder of CMX, which I started seven years ago as like the community for community professionals. And yeah, just published The Business of Belonging, which is kind of a collection of my 13 years of doing this work and trying to make the path easier for the next generation of community professionals who are just getting started. Okay, so everyone's duly warned. Don't ask David, what do you do? Because you get it. Obviously, you wouldn't do that at a party, I imagine. Yeah, it's it, well in San Francisco. That's all anyone talks about. So maybe I'm tired of it. Okay, uh, so um, what's it like working for? Because I don't think Bev is not a huge company, but you've got. Did you have an assistant when you were running CMX? Because we, we were talking to Peyton Payne, and I was wondering, are you used to having a personal assistant? Is that a new experience being in corporate life, having someone setting up your appointments, or is that a new experience for you? And so Peyton's not even my assistant. She's just helping out. She she works on a bunch of different marketing things for us and. Uh, around the book launch, it's it's been, uh, I'm very grateful, it's been very busy. And so she's helping kind of book all the events and interviews and stuff like that. Um, the, Bevy's the largest company I've ever worked on. Um, we're uh, over 100 employees now. We just raised our Series B. So we're going to be growing to about 200 this year. Things are growing very quick. But before Bevy, you know, I was a, a startup founder three times. Um, but generally kept teams pretty small. CMX was a bootstrap company for seven years or for five years before the acquisition by Bevy. And so, um, no, not, not very used. I've had like virtual assistants, uh, before, um, but the, the rate of growth and the size of the team and all the things we have going on is, is uh, new territory for me. Mm-hmm. So I've read your book, and I have to say, anyone who's interested in community, either for business purposes or indeed for non-business purposes, it's a really excellent book, and we'll come on to it. But I, I was noticed that in your in the book, you talk about how when you were a student, they weren't really teaching much to do with the internet, and you somehow persuaded your university or your professors or the course director to 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 to. Um, introduce some sort of like internet stuff into the course which was quite an entrepreneurial thing to do did you was that the sort of person you were like go to your university because i i know lots of entrepreneurs but did you go to your university and say hey you should i I can teach something in the course that i'm part of yeah um yeah i've always been very entrepreneurial and always wanted to uh, build businesses uh, even since i was a really young kid and um the course came out because I was a business administration major at a school called SUNY Geneseo. It's a state university in New York. If you're not from New York, you've probably never heard of it. If you are from New York, you know, it's a really good school, um, but it's a fine arts college. It's not known for business. Um, I went in originally for uh, political science and then just decided I hated that. So I switched over to business. And um, when I went to you know the marketing classes there and, and they were teaching like assembly line management and like the traditional marketing mix. And I was just sitting through these classes, just completely unengaged because um, I had been very active in the world of online communities since I was a little kid and and really passionate about that. I even just completed an internship at a a traditional PR firm called Ruder Finn, 
but I was part of like the web team. So it was like five stories of people in suits writing traditional press releases. And we were this like weird little corner of one floor with like 10 of us that could wear like t-shirts. And we were like pitching web redesigns to like the Metropolitan Museum and just like get more on like the blogging. And like, that was very innovative at the time, just like web design and blogging. And so, and, and I was starting to look at, you know, Twitter had just come out. I remember my manager called me into his office and was like, can you go find out what this Twitter thing is? And so I went, looked it up. I came back and I said, I have no, I have no idea, but it's probably not going anywhere. It seems really silly. Uh, I didn't realize it completely like. That's funny. Um, but I was really fascinated by, by those technologies and how they were changing the way business would be done. And then in school, I just wasn't seeing any of that being taught. And so I, I pitched the idea for like a social media course to the business department and they actually wouldn't do it. They were just, you know, they were like, That's sorry, what year was this? Just to give us context. 2008. Okay. Um, and so, you know, they just wouldn't do it. And, and I ended up, uh, because I had taken a web design course, I ended up pitching the, the like web design teacher who was in like com computer science department, not even in the business department on, on the idea for like building up a social media, um, like reputation and profile and like using it for like career growth and marketing. And, and he was like, yeah, cool. If you'll put together the curriculum, I'll, I'll, I'll run a course. And so we were able to launch the first ever social media course here. That's, that's interesting. Cause this is one of the things we, we like to explore here is like, cause we, we interview a lot of entrepreneurs and, and what is it? So like, this was in your college years, you, that's clearly something that's entrepreneurial. You basically took the bull by the horns and decided you wanted something, or you saw there was an opportunity for the university. I'd like to go back a little bit that you mentioned that you, when you were younger, like, I, I love to hear, like, was there anything like when you were a kid or when you were like, what was the first sort of like, or maybe what's your background? Do you, is, is it in your family or there are your parents, people that set up businesses or like, where does it come from? Basically. Sort of. Yeah. My parents are both immigrants. My mom was born in Israel <coughs> from Lutzia and my dad was born in Dublin, Ireland, grew up in England, met my mom in Israel. They moved to the U.S. and I was born a year later and they didn't have, um, useful degrees or any degrees um and didn't have an established community and so my parents have always been like hustlers like working multiple jobs doing what they have to do to give myself and my sister the lives that they wanted us to have and um i probably get a lot of that hustle and that entrepreneurial spirit from them my dad sells uh plush toys uh, to this day, he's like, if you go to a carnival or an arcade in like the tri-state area, there's a good chance that he's one of the guys who's supplying those places with stuffed animals to the toys that they give away. Um, and my mom, you know, she's a preschool teacher, a Hebrew school teacher, babysits. They'll, they'll do whatever it takes to, you know, um, take care of their family and, and, and hustle to make ends meet. And so I got that from them. And that, I think that also gave me a drive to want to, frankly, to make money as, as I got older, because money wasn't something that came easy to us. Uh, we weren't wealthy. Uh, you know, we were like lower middle class. Um, and um, I always wanted to make sure that um, my family and later on my parents would have it easier than I did. And so I've always had that kind of dream of being an entrepreneur and being successful in that way. Um, and one of my first kind of experiences, which is both on community and entrepreneurship was with video games. I became very obsessed with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4 in middle school. Um, and it worked that I was also struggling mightily to find belonging on a local level. I, I you know, struggled with finding friendships and connection that way. And I found it through the video game. I became obsessed. I ended up playing it constantly, became one of the top players in the world. Uh, launched a clan with two co-founders of a clan. We became one of the top clans in the game. And then we launched a website and a forum that became one of the most popular communities for Tony Oaks Sports Gator 4. And so I was 14 and I was managing a community with like thousands of members. We were running contests, wow. trolls, um, <laughs> all the things that community professionals do today. So that was kind of my first like uh, eye-opening experience of uh, connecting with people online and building online communities.
But if I could cut in, uh, David, it's really interesting. Thank you for being so open about that. <clears throat> Obviously, managing this community was like gave you status and um, you became someone, but it wasn't necessarily making money. What was your what was the first thing you ever did? Or maybe it did make you money. Maybe you got sponsors and stuff. But what was the first thing that actually got you a dollar from anyone ever to pay you to do something entrepreneurial? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I guess like other kids, I was just always doing scrappy jobs. Um, I, I worked a lot in the restaurant world as a busboy, and like that teaches you a lot about working with people. Um, I would like, I was always a kid that would like go offer to like shovel snow around the neighborhood and charge like twenty dollars. So ring, ringing on doorbells, ringing on doorbells, and that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I like what what uh, there's like an old lady that I used to go do like like just like computer stuff for her. She'd be like just like I need to organize these documents and there's hours like, numbers and spreadsheets for her. Um, but yeah, things like that. Cool. And then so you uh, so that was but that is interesting that you had that background in community and then you carried that forward. I mean, so like you went to call like. So did that, how did that stick with you? I mean, you went to college. I mean, I actually studied poli sci as well and, you know, whatever. It's, I guess it's good for a conversation, but other than that, it's not really useful for anything. But did, did, so, but, so how did the community, like, just leave, talk us through how you got to, you know, or was that just something that stayed with you? Did you leave it aside and start something else or? or? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, so after you know, launching that forum. I just continued to stay very active in online communities, uh, IRC communities, gaming communities. Um, when anything launched online, I was very quickly, very quick to be an early adopter on anything like Facebook, Twitter, uh, MySpace, back in the day, like LiveJournal, DeadJournal, Ning. Um, uh, and so um, was, was just like always active in these online spaces. And uh, I think I think that internship was probably one of the first times that I connected the dots of like, oh, like you can do this for businesses and this could actually be a job, which was absurd at the time. The idea that you could build online community as a job is not something anyone had ever told me in my entire life. And you would not see that anywhere. Like it just, it wasn't a thing. And, um, but, but, there was starting to be talk of like social media marketing a lot at that time, which was different, different than building community social media marketing. But there was a lot of kind of energy around building a Twitter following or a Facebook page or whatever for a business. And I, so I became very plugged into that kind of space. And I was still in college and I started a blog. It was just my name, davidstings.com. And I was writing about what I was seeing in the world of social media business, which was still, I, I think I was, by far like the youngest person writing about it at the time. Um, I, I guess I was kind of fearless at that time too and would like put a lot of bold claims or like challenge really important people publicly online on Twitter, like John there. And I, I made a pretty good name for myself. Um, and so I was just, I would be sitting, I was in a frat and sitting in my dorm room um, in the frat house. Uh, there would be like a party going on downstairs and I'm writing about like concepts of social identity and how our identity is changing in the internet era. So it was an interesting like juxtaposition in that scene. And then um, a company read one of my blog posts and, and then emailed me while I was a senior in college. And they said, hey, we're going to be going through this accelerator program in Philly for the summer. Um, it's just two of us who are developers. We need someone to build our community. Do you want to come join us as a community manager for the summer? Uh, and I was like, will you pay me? And they're like, oh. <laughs> um, I was like, will you pay for my rent? And they're like, yeah, sure. I was like, okay, fine. So I found it. <laughs> how, how much did they pay you? Five grand for the summer, which actually isn't bad, like for an internship. I Absolutely. Nonstop, nonstop. And so I joined that company as a community manager, and that was my first job as a community manager, building community for a company. And, um, that that team ended up building we ended up pivoting our idea we ended up build, building seedbeat ended up being one of the largest online ticketing sites in the world that you know, rivals StubHub. so i kind of lucked into a really great opportunity with that but um that was my first 
uh, first time getting paid for it. And I was like, oh, shit, like maybe this can be a job. So did you keep working there or did you move on? Because I, I and also what's really interesting, I think, about this opportunity was not only that you got to monetize or whatever, have to use your community skills, but you also probably wasn't your first sort of experience with the startup world and like this is what startup world looks like and this is what you know how it works if you wanted to set it was that is that would that be accurate i mean yeah yeah i mean i was i was like going to like networking events and stuff like that in new york <clears throat> starting to get connected in the startup world that way but you know when you, do, you haven't worked on anything and you're that right. young this really offer people so it's just mostly me going to events and just trying to just you know have a good conversation with people uh yeah so the quick of it is we were in that accelerator for three months um halfway through it we pivoted from a company called scribnia we sold that product and pivoted to SeatGeek. but the person we sold scribnia to this man named mark duquette um, uh, entrepreneur out of montreal who was buying up all different content sites to basically create like an ad network and he needed someone to run scribnia so he wasn't trying to run that business. He just wanted it to continue to grow. Um, it was like a blogger review site. So it was like Yelp for bloggers. And, right. and so the co-founders that hired me, they were like, oh, well, David has done everything except for building this site. So um, you should just hire him as your general manager. And so that's what I did. And then three months out of college, I became the general manager and was just running this business end to end, basically, and built out a team. Okay, wow. And got kind of thrown into the fire that way. And were you, were you hiring? Did you have many people report? What was the maximum number of people you had reporting to you? How, how big was your team? That team, probably about three or four, uh, mostly remote, you know, developers. We worked with like a, a development uh, outsource company. And so still very small. But still, you did have to manage people though. So and how did you find that? Extremely hard. <laughs> yeah, you're so young too. You were I so no young. What, I mean, yeah, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, we ended up pivoting the company because what I believed was it was like Yelp for bloggers, which was consumer facing. And what I was noticing is um, what we now consider like a very standard thing in like influencer marketing. Uh, I was starting to see that become something that was interesting in the world of bloggers because a lot of companies were starting to want to you know partner with bloggers do blogger outreach have them write about their products and so i said why don't we have all this incredible data about bloggers why don't we pivot this into a b2b program where now we can help businesses find bloggers that are relevant then we turn it into a company called blog dash and so yeah i mean i I, I'm very good at like coming up with new ideas and getting them off the ground and getting people excited about them. Um, to this day, I'm still learning how to be a better like operator and manager and, and scale things up. Um, but help help get that off the ground. Ended up running that for about a year and a half. Um, and then because I was doing that and managing a team and running a company, other companies started to perceive me as, frankly, just knowing more than I actually knew, <laughs> and, which is great, and, which is great in some ways <laughs> up for um, high expectations. And so a company called Zarly was blowing up. Uh, they came out of startup weekend where you pitch an idea over a weekend and you create a ragtag team right there on the spot and start building it. It was like the most successful company to come out of there, raised $15 million from Ashton uh, Kutcher, Groupon, uh, Klein, uh, uh, Sands Capital, Kleiner Perkins, like the who's who of investors at the time. And we were like a reverse Craigslist. So it was like, um, like you can put what you want and people could respond with offers. And they came to me and said like, we'd love for you to be our director of community. Um, and so I ended up leaving Blogdash, joining Zarly. And all of a sudden there, I was running a four-person team. We launched in 15 different cities, building communities and platforms and programs. And, and I, you know, I was young and ambitious. I was like, you know, fuck it. I can figure this out. I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll do it. Um, and it just it failed pretty mightily, both in terms of the company itself uh, didn't quite work. Um, but also, like, I was just in a deep and ended up burning out. I ended up getting fired from that job which was like the lowest point in my entire career and took a long time to get myself back up on my feet after that. But um, that was, 
that was the next step. <laughs> so I, 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 have a, I have a question. We're, I think we're coming to a pivotal moment in the story. But up until this point, in any of these spots, were you given equity or sort of like a chance to be or were you just a hired hand every time? Yeah. Yeah, I was I was given equity in some ways. So if you if the question is how much money have I made, the answer is no, 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 no. I was just curious if you've been exposed, (laughs) like how you got to the point where you actually would then go off and do it on your own. Was were you like were people giving you were they throwing you like deals? Like were you getting options? Like like how did it work up until that point? Yeah, a lot of people don't talk about it, and I'm I'm very open about it. But now a lot of people ask about it, and. Um, well, for, first I messed up with SeatGeek. Um, they they had messed up first because it was their first startup, which is right. you know, smart, successful entrepreneurs. I know Jack Ritzinger and Russell D'Souza, um, insanely successful and smart people. But it was the first startup. They gave me 1% to be the intern with no vesting, uh, no cliff, just I got 1%. And when we pivoted from Scribnia to SeatGeek, they basically said like, hey, uh, we'd love to like kind of bring back all the equity because we're like starting a new company. So we'd love to you know, buy the equity from you. And they offered me 5K for it. And I said, you know what? I think, I, I think I'm gonna hold on to it. Um, I was right out of college. I didn't have a dollar to my name. I was like in debt, uh, but I was like, nah, 5,000, uh, you know, I'll hold on to it. And they're like, oh, well, we really appreciate you believing in us. Um, what, what about 6,000? I was like, done. <laughs> <laughs> yes um, nice move <laughs> would be worth millions of dollars today um yeah which you know who knows how that would have completely changed everything i would have done after that if i like yeah, right yeah, out of yeah, yeah, yeah. wealthy um and then sorry um i ended up getting fired 10 months into the gig so i didn't meet my one-year cliff and didn't end up getting any equity out of that okay. um i started a company called feast uh, owned a lot of that. That didn't work out. We sold the product for basically just to break even and get the investors back some money and didn't make any money on that. Started uh, CMX, bootstrapped that, pretty much went into debt. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, made enough to like continue to sustain myself and, and um, you know, live a scrappy life. Uh, um, and, you know, now it was acquired by Bevy and it's another. Uh, it's another lottery ticket, but I do own equity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the lessons, I mean, the lessons to learn. I mean, look, a lot of this is, you know, we get, I don't know, like between one and 2,000 listeners for each episode. And, you know, a lot of these people, I think, are like, they want to get inspired and they want to, and, and, and they want to, they, they're trying to, they're, they're going along their road as well. And, and so, like, this is valuable just to hear, like, going for the equity negotiating the equity like i love the five to six thousand dollar story i mean that's like that's like that is a very valuable lesson and so today so basically you've taken this road today and now um you're in you you know you're in this you're you're in bevy um but can we talk a little bit about community because i'm really interested in that i come from sort of a b2b um sort of whatever entrepreneur but sort of b2b sales and like i I wonder i just you, you know i naturally wonder when i listen to you is there a role like is there a role for community in everything is there you know is there is, is community only limited to like when i think about apple and like the apple community and when i think about you know there's plenty of little like product i guess communities people are evangelists and they love their product right. and they have a community around it but um is there can you talk a little bit about like who's community is, is community something that a lot of companies can use or is it limited to the types of companies that can they can have a community all businesses can build community because all businesses are made up of people and when there's people there's identity and people have an identity that maybe they don't get to express somewhere in the way they want to today and that's an opportunity to give them a space to do that and so yeah i mean if it's a product like apple or you know sephora has a thriving community fitbit has a thriving community um, products that people love and use a lot and it's like an active part of their life uh, very easy to build kind of fan base that um, you can build for your employees um, you can build a community for your larger industry right so like um, uh, branch metrics is a mobile analytics uh, platform 
you know, not necessarily the sexiest identity like Apple, um, but they built a mobile growth community for the larger identity that they're trying to work around where anyone who's focused on like, how do you grow using mobile analytics and mobile ads, um, growing mobile apps, uh, they built a community for them where they can teach them, they can teach other and connect with other people who are doing that work. Um, Culture Amp launched their People Geeks community for anyone who's in like a or HR role. You have Salesforce with their Trailblazer community. So B2B, B2C. Um, okay, even- for B2B, you can set up, you're saying basically set it up around the problem that you're trying to, I think you're saying set it up around the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, there are many layers of identity in every community. Yeah. Yeah, and then also employees is also obviously employees is also a very good one. Be the larger category, so like not just customers, but anyone who's in the industry that you're working on, right? Like HubSpot inbound with inbound marketers as well. Um, Or it can be a customer identity. It can be an ambassador identity, right? Like the Skin Ambassador program. The Skin's the largest newsletter in the world, and they run the Skin Ambassador program where they reward people for referring subscribers. Um, it could be a power user identity, like the Yelp elite for Yelp's most active reviewers or Airbnb's most active hosts with a super host program. So, um, or it could be employees, um, internal communities, especially as companies are all going remote or becoming a thing now. So anywhere where there's people, there's an opportunity to connect people to each other and help make them more successful by empowering them to uh, organize each other and educate. Yeah, and if you if you read the book, you know, which I strongly recommend, the you give really powerful example like the difference between Rosetta Stone and Duolingo, how you know companies with strong communities basically became far bigger businesses in terms of their market cap and value, and, and you, you give plenty of plenty of examples. But you also pointed out that you know the less sexy the industry, the less cool it is, the more opportunity there is to build community because people feel marginalised. Can you talk a bit about that? The, 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 why, why is community more important, maybe more more of an opportunity for the people who aren't the cool kids? Well, because you can create a space where they feel cool, right? Like we, we, when we were all kids, for the most part, you know, it's pretty clear what cool is, right? It's the kids that are athletic and wealthy and dress nice and are popular. As we get older, you, you start to find all these new opportunities to be cool, right? You could be cool and be a gamer or play Magic the Gathering. In that group, you're cool, right? It opens up to these different networks. And so if you have a customer base who traditionally does not feel cool in their identity and you create a space where they are celebrated and respected and understood and seen that where they feel cool in the space that you create, you will have a massive center of gravity that's drawing those people toward you. Right. So, you know, an example I give in the book is the ministry of testing software tester, not the most, you know, sexy role title, all the communities that had existed back in the day were what you would expect for software tests, kind of very dry, uh, very like, you know, straightforward Q&A, not a lot of personality or fun. And it was Rosie Sherry who launched a ministry of testing. And like, you go to that website and there's like all these monsters all around it. They're they're kind of the mascots and it's just got a, a much more playful vibe. And it brought the contrast that people in that space were looking for because just because they work in a space that other people perceive as boring, to them, the work is exciting and they're very curious, passionate about it. And and it was exciting for them to have a place that looked at this as something that's fun and playful, right? And it's the experience we had with CMX as well because when we launched CMX, the community manager didn't feel cool. The community manager felt, you know, companies are still perceiving community managers is low level. Uh, They'd often just hire an intern to manage a community. Uh, No one really understood what they did. They'd go to a marketing conference and have to explain what community management was a thousand times. Right. We manage a Facebook page, right? No, let me explain it. And then they come to CMX Summit for the first time and look around and see hundreds of other people who- With exactly the same problems. Problem with them. And we'd be on stage, I'd be on stage saying like, Community is the future of business. This is where things are going to go. And you're doing some of the most important work in the world. And it's extremely hard work. It's work that takes a professional and a lot of experience. And we're so excited that you're all here so we can like learn together and grow this industry. 
that made them feel, you know, I, I still get messages today where they said that was the first time I felt like this was a career path for me that I can stick with and fly in. This is really cool. And I want to bring it to sort of a practical level. Cause like, so the, the, the main business I'm involved in is in a translation. It's a translation company. And the people we sell to are, are people we call like localization managers. It's the people in the company that it's responsible for translation. And they're often massively underappreciated within their organization and massively underappreciated um, you know, only by <laughs> us, the people that sell to them, basically, are the only people that, uh, that sort of recognize them. And so if we were trying to set up a community, and this is I'm trying to get sort of like a practical, if anybody's listening to this and they're also thinking, hey, I know a group of people that this sounds like, how do you actually set, set up a community and like what are the aspects of it? Like what do you focus on to make it successful? Yeah. So uh, the first step is always going to be to talk to those people. Uh, like you're building a product, you don't want to just start building it. You need to really understand who you're building it for and what their pain points are. So if you got on the phone today with 10 of those translators and just had a conversation with them, what are your pain points? Where do you go today to get support? How many other translators do you know out there? Um, what, you know, what, what do you think uh, a community could do to serve you and understand their language, understand what's exciting to them, understand where they're going right now to find that emotional support and the practical support that will give you a lot to work with. Um, and then you, you, you know, there's some simple things to do, like giving them a name, right? Like in the ministry of testing, it's just like a fun name. Um, you know, give, giving people weeks is, is like a fun name. It's a name for uh, the member that they can identify with. So I don't know what you call them, translation heroes or, or something. Yeah, so that could be. That's a very good one, actually. There you go. Run with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and then like, but like, how would it be like, you know, I, I'm sure people are doing this. Like they have like, they've created LinkedIn groups and stuff like that. You know, that would be like a typical way that they would do it. But I'm not sure that that's really meeting the bill here um that what you're talking about well well so there's the um there's the design of the community identity and i talk a lot about the social identity in the book we talk about the social identity cycle and so the social identity cycle is three stages identification participation and validation all right so first is identification so that is the first step talk to the people really hone in on what is the social identity you're creating, whether it's a name, the symbols that exist in this space already, the language that they use, um, the logo you create, um, just really try to hone in on who this person is that you're trying to organize. And then you get into participation. That's where you start to think about, okay, what platforms are they currently using that we can engage them on? Or do we want to bring them onto our own platform? Um, what does that membership journey look like? So are, you know, how are, how are they participating? How are we onboarding them? How are we engaging them? And then what kind of leadership positions can we set up for them once they're really, really engaged? And then you have validation, which is, um, you know, so say this person's like, I'm a translator. Um, I identify with this group because I just heard about it. I'm going to participate for the first time. I'm going to post in the LinkedIn group or the Slack group or wherever you end up mm -hmm. posting. And I'm going to introduce myself. I'm going to start, you know, interacting a little bit. And then validation says, well, they need to feel a sense of reward and validation for that participation. So if they introduce themselves, did they get a nice response to that introduction or did it just kind of go right. on the abyss and now they don't feel validated? If they read oh, that's that, valuable. They learned something, did they get something out of it? Um, did, did someone from the team speak in the message? They were like, hey, so glad you're here. Let me know if you have any questions. And so they feel very welcome in there. If they feel validated, it reinforces the identity, and that's why it's a cycle. So now they might start to feel like, oh, maybe I am, you know, someone who can be a member of of Translation Heroes, and and so now I'm ready to participate more. Maybe next time I ask a question. Maybe eventually I attend an event. Maybe I even eventually host events and become a leader in the community, become a moderator. And as they participate more and more, they feel greater and greater validation. And the identity continues. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually run a number of different community groups, and some of them are 
completely for fun. Like I run a, a, a fan club for a podcast called the Beef and Dairy Network Podcast, which is a comedy podcast. And it's an unofficial community on Facebook. And we have a ritual when a new member mo- uh, joins, we move them in and we post gifts of guys. And it's very funny. And it's a very, very niche thing, but also serious things like an alumni group for Cambridge University entrepreneurs around the world. And as a result of reading your book, I, we've just mo- moved on to a, a, a mid price platform called mighty networks which is not not because there's no money in it i I pay i fund it myself you know i don't want something too expensive but i literally went in and welcomed all the latest round of members which you said is a really important thing and you say and i also wrote to the city leaders because there's one in new york and dubai saying when people from your town join i want you to welcome them and you know that was your direct sort of you know i knew it for the fun stuff but you know is is very practical and I, i i wanted to ask you about resources because you get communities where you know like the salesforce community where there's tons of money there's no issue it's worth spending thousands of dollars on boarding someone who's buying salesforce from salesforce because there's money in it but are there any tips and tricks for for managing communities where basically there's either zero money involved or it's so small that you know you can't really put all those resources in because you talk a lot about the sustainability of communities and how if they're not paying their way sooner or later they collapse which is a very thought-provoking point well i just want to say i love that example i wonder if you ever accidentally moo in the alumni community and you're like, Sorry. <laughs> I, I, funny 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 you should funny you should say that i i actually was joking with another community manager and I and someone you joined the other community this is village in the city which is a non-profit I said be careful we don't move him in because <laughs> exactly that <laughs> so you know interesting you spotted that already that, that weird stuff is what makes communities special it's like the things that make you weird are what make the community really valuable so embrace your weirdness find the weird things get a ritual and and that's what sets it apart um so yeah, uh, uh, a huge premise of this book, even in the name, The Business of Belonging, the reason I chose that title is because the tension of thinking about business and belonging in the same sentence uh, makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, but having worked in this space for 13 years, both with everything from the largest companies in the world to brand new startups, just, you know, I've done a ton of workshops and, and work with Facebook, with Facebook admins who are generally people who are just like doing it because they're passionate about organizing a community for girls who love traveling or gay dads. And there's like no business part of it. They're just like, I want, I want to help people. I started this community. All of a sudden there's millions of members in it and I'm managing this like large group of volunteers. And across the board, whether it's a huge company or just someone doing it casually, there's a struggle for the community builder to figure out how do I make this financially sustainable? And for the big business, that means how do you do it at the scale of a Salesforce or a, uh, a Nike or you know, a company with thousands of customers? And you need a ton of resources to do it properly and do it well to that Facebook group admin who's putting a ton of hours into building this community and managing it and keeping it healthy and managing volunteer teams and seeing no financial return for it so they can't take care of themselves or be able to pay others to like help with moderation or hire a team to work on this stuff. And so to me, it's critical that we stop looking at business and belonging as these opposite things and we start looking at it as uh, a balance of how do we build communities that are both meaningful to our members but also financially sustainable so that we need to invest in it and give the people working on it the organizers the resources they need to, to do this over time because otherwise they're just going to burn out or the community is going to fail hmm. And I noticed what, there's one mistake. I, I've been a TEDx organizer involved in the world of TED and TEDx for uh, 11 years, and I recently recently stopped. But you, 
actually incorrectly say that TEDxers are allowed to make money out of it, that you say you get it for free and it, they can make a business out of it, which absolutely isn't isn't true. And it's interesting the, the motivation for the TEDx organizers are multiple and sometimes they have connected connected businesses like their you know, their public speaking coaches or something like that, which is kind of they can build their personal brand and monetize elsewhere. But um, there are examples of communities which run on volunteer ether and TEDx is an example. In fact, you actually have to pay because if you want to do a bigger event, you have to go to a TED event, which costs a serious amount of money, 6,000 bucks or 10,000 bucks for a ticket. So there are examples of that, but the, I said, uh, maybe religion is like that. People are, are a member of a church and are, basically they give money to the church, but the ch church never pays them back so do, do, do you just feel that there's a, a, a group of or maybe they don't pay back in terms of you know going to heaven or whatever they do get big payback in other ways but anyway, yeah eternal just... eternal life you know that's sorry <laughs> you know for example but are there are there do you, do you just feel that those are communities that you're not going to study or do you feel that ultimately you know religion isn't sustainable and sooner or later religion is going to collapse because it doesn't pay its way no, I mean, religion, they're, they're making plenty of money. So this is an example of like, they've figured out a way to monetize community. Now, like, are they doing it ethically? Are they doing it in a way that's fair to the members? Like that, that's a larger conversation. Um, but the fact that they're saying like, we are giving you value and that value is worth something. And so we are going to ask you to pay for that value. Um, which I don't think is a bad thing because no, I think it's actually the best example. Actually, I think I'm so glad that you brought that up because that the, that's a perfect example that everybody can understand. I mean, of, uh, is it, you know, you're, they're monetizing something of value. Exactly. They, they absolutely are. I mean, yeah, we can dive into religion and you know, the extent to which they leverage the, the, the belief system and, and things like that to drive people are they having people give more than they're able to um you know where is that money coming from and yeah, those respect? are those are ethical questions and, and i don't want to <laughs> maybe this isn't the podcast <laughs> but, but exactly the point is like from a perspective of like anyone who's building community is creating value for people and so what there's there's different ways to monetize a community and, and probably not enough community builders straight up just charge for membership. And that's in part because the internet has made communities so free and open. But I think my, my, th my thinking is that that's gonna change in the same way that content and creators are changing now. And that the internet has made content extremely free and ubiquitous. So, you know, bloggers and podcasters and creators, video creators struggling to get me for a while. And now we're getting a point through things like Patreon and now now Twitter's launching Superfile. All these platforms are trying to figure out how to help creators be successful because they're realizing that that's what needs to happen for creators to continue to be on their platform and invest there. I think we'll start to see a similar communities where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of free stuff out there, but we're going to create this really valuable experience and, and be able to charge for it in, an, in a sustainable way. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. And I mean, in a sense, you've alluded to this already that, you know, you got huge value out of community from a sort of psychic point of view when you were a teenager. It was the first time you felt at home somewhere, even if you weren't getting money out of it. And so um, you obviously appreciate the, the value of community it doesn't have to be monetary. But on the other hand, if it's not self-sustaining, it sooner or later will collapse. So and I think you made the point very clearly now and in the in the book. But in terms of your personal goals, you were financially motivated. I think in your interview with Andrew Warner on the Mixergy podcast, you alluded to the fact you haven't, you don't feel you've really made it yet. So are you still like, you know, and, uh, and I say that respectfully because you, uh, at one level you're you're a big name in the world of community management but you haven't made it maybe financially to the goals that you want to but um what what's success going to be and suppose you do suppose bevy goes public and you know you get a, a seven figure sum or an eight figure sum in your bank account are you going to carry on doing what you're doing or do you have like other things you want to do after this or, because right now obviously you're kind of all in on bevy and that's a perfectly rational thing to do but what's success going to be like for you 
Yeah. Well, I, I just a note on that too. Like I've, I've been spending a lot of time recently on the topic of just what's enough. And, you know, I was, I was, I was reflecting back to, you know, when, 10 years ago when I would think about this question, I'd say, you know, like, I just want to have enough that I can take care of my family, live in a nice house, um, be able to take vacations whenever we want, um, have a sense of autonomy over my career and my life. And, and so I was like thinking back to that and I was like, well, I have all that now. Um, like more would be nice, but like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm, I have all those things, uh, that I always said I wanted and it's, it's, you're always pulled into this idea of I need more, I need more, I need more, especially in the world of startups and entrepreneurship and a person like me that just always, um, and, and nothing ever feels like enough because you always see that next level that you want to hit. Um, but I've been reflecting a lot on that question lately and um, finding new balance with the idea that in, in many ways, I feel like I've made it. Um, and so I don't have to worry about like, how do I just get more money? I can really pick and choose the things that I really want to spend my time on. I feel really passionate about what will I continue to do? Whatever comes next. Um, I don't know. I can't tell you, but I think I'm still deeply curious about community and I'm still deeply curious about this industry and I'm still enjoying the process of trying to solve the puzzle of making community a core part of every business that the value is understood and assumed in the same way we think about marketing today every business is marketing i think i truly believe every business is gonna have community and i'm enjoying being part of the process of figuring out how do we get there so as long as i'm still curious about it i'm gonna stay, i'm gonna continue to work on it and how do you feel about um just, I guess you spent basically you spent your whole career in this in in startups, right? In one one startup after another. And do you are you sort of like passionate about like? So I mean, is your next the next step? It's going to be another either you'll found it or join or 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 will it be a startup? Um, is that how you think about or do you think about some just change, doing trying to do some? I'm just curious, how do you feel about startups and the startup world in general? Because you've been in it your whole career and. And is that something that then, you know, Richard actually is very involved in startups. I'm, I'm not at all involved in startups. I'm more of the traditional business uh, guy. So I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I love startups. I love working with startups, love founders. I love, I, I can't help it. I will probably start another thing in the future, what that looks like, if, if it's a you know, quote unquote startup or uh, uh, another bootstrapped kind of sustainable business that doesn't have to reach a billion dollars to be successful, or I, I don't know. I'd say whatever I do next is going to come after a pretty healthy uh, dose of rest and doing nothing. <laughs> okay. Well, th thank you. I've been on this path for 13 years, and um, another huge life-changing thing is we just had a baby. I have a seven-month-old at home. and so oh, Congratulations. So that's, that's definitely giving me this moment of, you know, I want to make sure that as I go into this stage and my time thoughtfully and intentionally, not just working of more, I think that's gonna, only going to come after taking a breath and kind of my head up and seeing where things are at and where I want to go from there. Great. Well, we'll um, I appreciate we're coming to the end of our allotted time, and I'll, I'll send you and share in the show notes a wonderful talk from a TEDx I organized, which is the most popular talk we ever had at our TEDx about r the way Dutch people raise kids. It was an American and a British lady who both married Dutch guys, and is they wrote a book called The Happiest Kids in the World, and just... Talking up Holland, the Netherlands against against America and the UK as being, and it's really really compelling. If you've got a young child, it's not. I read it after all my kids were 
it was too late for me to too late. You made all the mistakes. I, I, I made all the mistakes. But um, but it, I, a couple of questions about your attitudes. Do you see yourself as a competitive person, and do you think you've been lucky, or did you? And do you do you like you said talked about the startup world where you're always wanting more? Do you, do you, do you have you sort of dealt with that in terms of thinking about what's enough, or are you still like a highly competitive person who basically needs to beat those guys who are mean to you at school and all the rest of it? Yeah, probably that. I'm still, I'm a very, <laughs> um, which is like weird for me because I'm also a people pleaser. So sometimes, you know, I always like make friends with my competition, but I'm still like, I'm going to beat you, but like, let's be friends. <laughs> um, so it's like weird uh, uh, tension in me, but very competitive. I also grew up playing like every sport. I still play a lot of sports. Um, it's just kind of part of my nature. Um, did I get lucky? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I believe my, my theory on luck is basically just like you have to keep putting yourself in a position to get lucky. So hard work alone isn't going to get you where you need to go. But without hard work and putting yourself out there and taking risks, you're not putting yourself in a position for something spontaneous to happen. And my career has been a series of fortunate events. But those fortunate events always came because I wrote a blog post that I was afraid to put out there or I took a leap and put myself in a position that I was afraid of uh, that just somehow got me to this next landing pad. Um, so put yourself in a position to get lucky. Well, you mentioned you're going to take a long break after your the next chapter of your business life, and you obviously you're, you've got long hours in your in your day job, and you're raising your family and all those challenges. So, in a moment, I'm, I'm just going to ask Kimon to to wrap up and the few thank yous he should do. I'm going to say that do read the book, and I don't I don't always say that. I, I'm a community manager, and I think your book is excellent. So, I'm going to strongly encourage that. But Kimon, do you want to just do a few thank yous? I'll do that. I just also want to reflect on like one of one of the things you mentioned was the question of enough. And I think that's a really sort of important thing for people to sort of come to terms with, because if you don't, then like and again, once again, if you're listening to this and you're younger or earlier on, you know, uh, you know, basically, David was saying he came up with a with a number or an amount or whatever uh, a thing and then he's faced it and then he's like facing it again now well he's got that now and that's really what happens and i think that's really interesting because you know richard and i have talked about what it takes to be on the billion the billionaires list and like i'm not i'm not i'm not quite i'm not quite there yet you know no 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 yeah yeah which is not yet what motivates those people and it's like and it's all this it's really we suspect it's a lot of stupid stuff like am i on the third or the like i think they get pissed if they drop like three slots and like you're talking about really stupid motivation for life anyway i i thought that was a very nice little thing that you talked about there that a lot of people should think about but uh, yeah, as Richard said, um, you know, thanks to everybody who took the time uh, to listen to David and us for an hour. Um, you know, I thought it was really interesting. I, I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, thanks to uh, my daughter Magda Fontakidis, who does the. This is what this podcast is all about, David. It's about promoting my my, my daughter and her work. Uh, so this is all just a front for that. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so she does the graphic design and, and video editing. We have a very talented. Uh, high school intern named Magda Wishkosh, who does PMR, PR and promotion for us. Uh, the MBN team, uh, the, the platform where this podcast goes out, they do all the, uh, the, the technical sound editing and all that stuff that allow this to, allows this to go on. So um, if you enjoyed this, please subscribe at MBN, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked it, like it, comment it, share it, and let everybody know. And David, thank you so much for taking the time. I thought this was really interesting. I learned a lot about community. That you're, as you saw, I was thinking about how can I already implement this into my into my business. And I hope other listeners have the same. Well, I'd love to hear. Thank you very much indeed. Bye bye.